2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
3: This episode is one I've been looking forward to for a while now. We sat down with Nick Waplington, artist and photographer. He's a person I've known for years now. as a friend of the magazines. And Joe Talbot, frontman and singer-songwriter of Idols. Joe's work and Idols are producing some of the most interesting hard-driving rock at the moment. There's an honesty and an energy about their live performances. And the work they do really does turn a gimlet eye on the hypocrisies and the injustices particularly of contemporary Britain and the world. And Nick's stuff, well, Nick's brought a huge body of work over the last 20, 30 years, having established himself in the 90s um, with books like Living Room and Safety in Numbers as someone that makes documentary art, which might seem a contradiction, but if you know Nick's work, you'll know it's not. Anyway, since those days of being thought of as mainly a photographer. He's also created a huge body of work in painting and drawing. And yet he still remains the only photographer of a solo show at the tape. With a series of pictures that he made in collaboration with Alexander McQueen. Uh, Backstage it is, one of his last shows. And we met uh, in Nick's studio in the dog day of August. Um, towards the end of the first London lockdown, a strange day in the silence that replaced what should have been Notting Hill Carnival weekend. And I just had a feeling that there'd be some kind of invisible thread between these two people who have never met before, they 20 years apart in age, uh, doing vastly different work, but there's something that connects them, and I was just really interested to see what emerged. This is Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is the podcast from the Makers of Puck magazine. My name's Mike Fordham, one of the founding editors. And the podcast is about conversations across culture, where we sit down with people making stuff, creating culture in their own image, from artists and musicians, to activists and political people, all paddling against the flow, all defining who they are in opposition to the mainstream. We find the things that draw us together as well as the things that tear us apart. Okay, so I don't know what you guys know about each other. and I thought we could just find out. And that's that's a nice thing, but I've known Nick a number of years now, met you sort of mid 90s, I guess, lurking around Shoreditch, uh, at Days and other places. Um, and Joe, we've never met, but we've got some, well, yeah, we actually met in Bristol, which is a I weird connection. You a point. Yeah, which yeah. is strange. It interests me to get people like you in the same room together, and that's the point of this this series of talks around is that I feel like you're artists right, that sort of, there's some relationship there, you and know, I can't really work out what it is. I mean, um, you're about to launch album number three, I Mm. believe. Yes. Called Ultra Mono. Ultra Mono. And Nick is about to drop a book called Anaglypta, I believe. It is, yes. It's called Anaglypta, Anaglypta. yeah. Which I don't understand the meaning (laughs) (laughs) of.
1: Anaglypta, um, the term is a type of wallpaper that was popular in the 60s and 70s. And it has, uh, you used to see it a lot on the ceilings of pubs. There'd be these kind of square boxes. Yeah. Yeah, And you know, they'd have it everywhere in pubs. And I used to photograph um, a glue sniffer a lot, a guy called Lucky Jim. And he really, really liked to go into pubs after he'd been glue sniffing and buy half a lager and look at the of ceilings because they'd help him trip because mm. the squares would come down from mm. the roof. So the term actually came from him. And I like it, it's a beautiful word. It is a lovely word. Yeah, it's a lovely word. And it just describes these kind of boring, seemingly boring ceiling tiles that you see everywhere. I used to get them. Of course, the, wall, the wallpaper in, um, as well in you know, cheap bedsits and whatever. Mm. At one time,
4: I always find that there's there's a real violence to seventies decor. My my great grandfather and his brother, Pops, who lived in like houses, and my grandfather as well. He he was an engineer, so he liked to do all his own decorating and and like. I, I can't remember. I can, I can remember there being in, in, in the bathroom avocado, everything, yes. and and textured, heavily textured wallpaper. I remember that, and I just I, I love it. I love that. <laughs> I love the detail of things like uh, wallpaper and like, just like ornate plastering and things like that. Stuff that you just don't see as much, obviously for for good reason. Like you know, minimalism. Uh, is, is it, there's something calming about it. In the 70s, it doesn't seem like a very calming time, but...
3: So why why uh, did you focus on that for the collection? Of, what, tell us about the book of it.
4: The book is
1: a collection of kind of 500 pictures, of which about 95% of them I've never published before. That they're pictures that i kind of taken on the go by just having a small camera on me from the kind of the age of 14 onwards, mixed up with a few kind of more conceptual projects and the projects I did for Art Forum. And then I kind of made this long non-linear journey through the kind of 40 year period with a kind of slight focus on the idea of of how this guy, Jim, used to, I used to talk to him a lot when I was Photographing him for a few years, his kind of trippy journeys that he went on when he was high, or when you know, the, or he was going to look for Evo Stick because what he really liked was um, the active ingredient in old school Evo Stick, but they discontinued it by the late 1980s. So he'd go on these bus journeys around the Midlands looking for like out of the way home decor shops where they might have old stock. And then he'd buy it all up mm. and then have a kind of supply of it for a while. I and mean, he was really dedicated to um, this kind of hallucinogen. I don't actually, I should find out what the active ingredient is called. But yeah, obviously it's a drug that's gone
3: mm. now. Because the things you photographed, I was trying to work <coughs> And I've said this to you before, when I, when I first met you, everyone you referred to as old Nick, the hardcore, hardcore reportage photographer. And I know that was probably 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, just after the living room pictures came out, right? Yes. Um, it's in Nottingham. It Tell is. us a bit about that. Um, is it Nottingham? We, it we is Nottingham.
1: No, before. I mean, you know, um, my grandfather, uh, lived on a council estate to the north of Nottingham, between Nottingham and Derby. Really, it's a kind of uh, in an area where there had been coal mines, and the coal mines were gone. And by the by, the mid mid nineteen eighties, it became a dumper estate where they put all the problem families. Mm. And uh, so I was there taking pictures, and I d- I didn't really have enough money to take the pictures and they did photography at the local university. So I didn't really need to go to university to study photography, but I went to the college to give me access to the dark rooms so I could continue to make the work. Mm. I mean, it's what happened. I was a kind of, I don't want to sound kind of conceited, but I was in a completely kind of different league to the other students who were, a lot of them were just like very young and they
3: just, you know, it's, cause it started really early for me, that creative life. That was one I was wondering about you. I mean, uh, when is a creative life going? When did you start imagining a life like you live now? Or did you ever imagine that? I was 25.
4: I was DJing. I started DJing. And um, my mate ran a club. He um, was just like, you like music. You said, do you want to DJ? I was like, do I get paid? They were like, if it's popular. So I was like, all right. And then, like, I, I was a really, like, avid listener of music, uh, the, like, current music. I was constantly, you know, like, it like it was exciting at the time. Like, new bands are coming out every week.
3: When was this? What year? Oh, wow, my, 11 years ago. So, what are we now? 2020, so 2010 or
4: something like that. Yeah, but, like, I realised real quick that it was a lot of, like, wankers on stage that looked bored and weren't really writing anything impressive or vital or vibrant or life like what kind of uh, music were you djing i was djing a lot of post punk punk indie like current music was just indie really it was just they, right. they called it indie but like you know everything from 60s garage rock post punk 70s 80s all around anything kind of like the prototypical music of what was being released at that time. Um, but gig going was just becoming more and more vapid and like, I just wanted to be a band full of life and kind of be not beautiful and, but exciting to watch was my remit, I guess. I just wanted to inject a bit of life in, I just wanted to fill a gap that wasn't there for
3: me. You know, that was, it was just boring. For and me. it was for you, for you, that was interesting, because yeah, you weren't thinking about the market, the music market, or what's missing. Uh, nah,
4: because it was dying, you know, like guitar music was dying, it was like, no one was buying it. We did we, you know, it was, we, we weren't selling out venues or anything for fucking eight years, we didn't sell out a show. Yeah. Like, it wasn't about that. It was definitely for me, but like, at the same time, it wasn't for me because I wasn't good. So it's that frustration thing of like, I don't know, when you're about five or six, or maybe uh, maybe younger, and someone says, draw a dog. And your brain's going, this is what a dog looks like. And your hand's going, this is what a dog looks like. And you do that, and it doesn't have anything like a fucking dog in your head. It was like that for us for like nine years, you know. Until we started really speaking our own language. It takes a long time, you know. We were democratically writing, which means giving each other time to learn and be shit. And we were shit so it wasn't for us for a long time Mm. we were trying and like the doing was
3: the you know the music wasn't for us but the doing was yeah that's good well i know that when you were coming up obviously a different decade different time (laughs) but i mean i remember you told me a story you started really early i mean by making zines right blagging your way into gigs because you had a zine yeah
1: that's right i mean I, i started taking pictures when i Realized if I had a camera I could maybe get into shows gigs for free and uh, I Because of my age being very young I was kind of a bit taken under the wing of Mick Jones who kind of took a liking to me and always if I was around would make sure that I you know got in and I could take some pictures, which was obviously Very nice, you know, and that's the kind of friendship that I've maintained Um so that's been good but i mean obviously they were kind of a massive band but i used to go and see bands you know like the au pairs and mm. delta five and you know the birthday party uh, a lot of kind of indie bands when i what what was the kind of post-punk kind of bands mm. you know i used
4: to like um I fucking love the au pairs man obviously yeah. the other two as well i just discovered the au pairs like, <laughs> right. about Four months ago, yeah, they were so
1: good live, and just the movement on stage. And they'd often they play with Delta Five, so Mm. you get to see both bands at the same time. And you know, I they both had that kind of funky edge to them. Mm. Yeah, I mean. yeah, the two Au Pairs albums are two of my favourite records, you know.
3: We're talking the early 80s? Early yeah, teenage? we're
1: talking the early 80s, 80, 81, 82. And so you're, you're, a,
3: you're, a, you're a mid-young, mid-teenager, right?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of 14, 15 in 1980. And I was going to all the, you know, you could get in. I mean, this is at a time when there was no IDing, right? No. If you looked old enough to go in somewhere, you could go in anywhere, you know, there was And you could have a beer. No one gave a shit. I mean, mm. it was like, you know, you couldn't... If, when I was 14, I could go to the bar and I could buy half a lager or a pint of... That. I didn't drink that much, but I couldn't go. They wouldn't serve you a double vodka. Mm. you know, but you could go and you could have a beer and you could watch the band. I always you know, had enough money for a beer and then, you know, or whatever. And I used to go to all the shows, all the gigs at, at the universities, you know, near where I lived. And then, because I lived on the outskirts of London in a place called Woking, which obviously has its own kind of history with uh, the jazz. You
3: were, we were well up well, well. Yeah, brought.
1: so I used to go and see them a lot. And obviously, you know, Simon Raymond, who was the bassist in uh, the Cocteau Twins, also came from Woking. Yeah. And he's now the Bella Union guy, you know, so. And then there were the Guildford bands, you know, Crisis and uh, the Vapours and the Stranglers, you know, which are all, for, all from that area and all the gigs at Surrey University. And then, you know, Punk
3: Night at the Lyceum on a, fr- on a Sunday evening. So it's that proper suburban periphery thing that you you come yeah. from, and you bubbling in, in Bristol when you were talking about your first forays into music, was it, or was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like
4: yeah, I was at, I was at uni um, studying film, mid twenties, um, and I just discovered drugs and music, and kind of scraped by the uni side, and then just discovered like the city, the proper side of the city, as I think you normally do at uni, don't you? fumble around the city when you go to university going to all the fucking shit stains like office workers enjoy and then you like realize there's venues and fucking people that you know like the same drugs as you so it was great i like
3: suddenly discovered it properly um that's a pretty it's a pretty big leap from just playing post-punk records to having a band and writing lyrics and writing music. Tell me about mm. that a bit. Because, I mean, are you, the, are you the driving force on the lyrics now? or Yeah, always. Yeah, always yeah. have been, right? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to sing
4: anyone else's words. I don't like just, you know, yeah. I got. Like, I wasn't good at singing, so I had to write. And my lyrics weren't that great. To start with, I was very, like, you know, I don't know, thin. Very thin. <laughs> um, well, I, I got there eventually. Even now, I think it's a bit thin. But, um, yeah, it was like, it, it was just like giving up on the whole scene. Like, there's a scene. I don't want a scene. Do you know what I mean? I don't want there to be a scene. Like, the thing about Bristol is, is it's like, it's nowhere near the size of a big city. And that site, like, you know, it is a city. And the, the, the best thing about it is the people and a sense of, like, community that that's not through drive, it's through, I don't know, it's like a weird joy to Bristol that's quite subdued. But that doesn't mean there's a lot of fight and a lot of competition and a lot of, so it's a balance of just not being a Bristol band, but really appreciating that
3: Bristol, like, helped shape our
4: philosophy, Right, It's interesting, really,
3: because like Bristol's synonymous with, you know, I can hate the word trip-off and that, but there is this sort of thing that- It's a crusty rave, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the the middle point there is
1: tricky, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) well, you know, I'm, yeah, I was very good friends (laughs) with Tricky at one time. We used to hang out, and when he was living in New York, and then, of course, when he bought the infamous house in New Jersey, which he has no idea where it was, I was (laughs) hanging out with him. I did a record cover for him, actually you know oh, yeah yeah, I, yeah the album was um called products of the environment and it was net island never released it mm. yeah and it had all these um he recorded all these spoken word sessions with all the old london gangsters uh you know what i forgot frankie fraser yeah all, that all those there. people and we ha and they had one of them had a pub down uh on the other side of the river, kind of Lewisham Way. The Frankie Former Yes, a council estate pub, you know, one of those kind of 60s modern ones. Self made. And they were all there on a Friday night, and they had on the wall in there this huge black and white photograph of, of London and it was glazed, and then they all came in, I did the picture, and while I was doing the picture, a group shot of them all together, it was this enormous photograph fell on the food and smashed <laughs> over <laughs> all the food just from nowhere, and the looks on their face, and I thought, well, they're gonna get rid of all the food, but they stood there, and they picked the glass <laughs> out of the food, and they the food, <laughs> That's it not Glass in my bottle of
3: fuck they, all, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah. Some,
1: some of them were like, uh, you know that frankie whatever guy were really old and they all went what's that club near old street round where they, used to, they used to have a swimming
3: pool in where they used to do raves oh yeah what's it called yeah for Framing- no what they, I know the one you mean yeah that yeah. rave club they or all went
1: there to do pills afterwards <laughs> yeah. even the ones who were like in their 70s they went there to take pills off and they said, oh, do you want to come? I was like, no,
3: no, no, I don't think so. That's not kind of what I'm about. Yeah. I met Frankie Fraser back in yeah. that day as well. I, did, I interviewed him for some stupid feature on Celebrity Gangsters. And he had that proper dead eye sallow. He'd spent like the last 45 or the last 50 yes. years in jail. He was, had that, that death about him, you know. Jesus. Yeah, what was
1: the name? Dave Courtney, maybe. Dave Courtney the same. Oh, he <laughs> may be the one who owned the pub. Oh, right. All, right. All very polite, and I did the pictures. I don't know where they are, actually. I must have them somewhere. And the following day, pictures of them all together appeared in the News of the Road world. And Tricky phoned me up and said, Have you been selling photos to this? And I was like, No, there were other people with cameras, their families in the room. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me that sold the pictures <laughs> to them. What the Litton does, News of the World Yeah, yeah it's funny, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But
3: it's, the, it's funny, like this create. I want to get back to this creative life thing because it feels like both, you both, you're on a different sort of stages of, of a journey, as reality TV people call it the journey of wherever you're going. Mm. But it's a strange one, isn't it, because there are all these connections that emerge and did you imagine that you'd be a lyricist working in the rock and roll industry with a third album out? I mean what what did you project that into the future and is you know, what did you imagine? I've always had a plan. Like I started off the band with a plan,
4: which is to to get good at writing music and be one of the best live bands on the planet. And we're still aiming for that. That's where I wanna be. I wanna be like Nick Cave and the Bassys or a Birthday Party or Radiohead. We just, you know, we're we're in a we're on a journey and like it's it's my, my father he just got up every morning to to paint and not to paint, sorry, to be a sculptor and to just be an artist and like I just realized oh, I could be a musician. I loved it. I've always like always loved music. I just never thought I could be a musician. It's one of those things like you know, it's like Speaking Japanese. I'd love to be able to speak Japanese. I'd love to be a musician, by this. Yeah. So, and I realised it's like you don't need an instrument. You just fucking shout at people. Hmm. Um, so ever since then, yeah, I've like I've just kept my head down and worked on my craft until it doesn't become a craft anymore. It becomes an art. And I think mean, it's just starting to transition to an art form now. I'm starting to speak it properly. Um, so that's why that I'm must
3: at. be an exciting thing to
4: to glimpse. It's always exciting, even when you're shit and you know you're shit, that's that's exciting as well, you know? It's about having having a realistic mm, goal. You know, like next week, you know, let's try and sell out or let's sell 50 tickets so we don't have to take money out of our own pocket for the fucking we rent, Whatever. Yeah. And it's Just set your challenges and be realistic about it. But yeah. think big, like, you know, I, I, I want to be, you know,
3: I want to be in love with what I do until I die, and that's, that's it. How about you and that? Because, I, as I say, like when, when you were setting out, I mean, I didn't know you until you were pretty still, not established in that world, known as this reportage photographer. Did you glimpse uh, some sort of career, or did it just develop and, and change out of all proportion? Because obviously your, your creativity encompasses a lot of different things, the paintings that we see behind, which I'd like to ask you about at some point after this, uh, after this bit. But um, did you... At that moment that joe just recounted when you might have glimpsed craft turn into art because so that i think that is an exciting moment and um, i wonder if you experienced that
1: i think you know i've always been fairly kind of confident about what i do and then you know, i'm not kind of i'm happy to fail and i'm happy to fail in public if that is going to enable me to continue to get somewhere else and i kind of i'm always kind of revising what the challenge is are and i'm kind of revising where i want to go with it and in that it keeps everything kind of exciting i if there's a point of, of kind of inertia where you've got to the point where you've you're established and you're making work and as, if you keep going in that vein then you can make a good living from it and i've seen this happen to a lot of my contemporaries people i was you know um I kind of knew when I was young and they've kind of stagnated because of that and their work is kind of ultimately boring and they're kind of waiting now to be kind of rediscovered again for their kind of second push later on mm. whereas a very few people I know who've kind of kept kind of trying to um, re- change things and keep it dynamic and that for me has always been the kind of drive. I'm excited every day to get up and um, make work again, because I, I'm always
3: moving the goalposts. Mm. Mm. Talk about those goalposts, it strikes me as well, and I feel there's a common thread here as well. I'm not like I'm trying to look at these false uh, relationships, but I think it's true and something that I'm inspired by artists that have this element, is that in something that you do, there is a sort of social function there. There's something that's related to contemporary society that comments upon it sometimes explicitly sometimes less so but certainly a lot of your photographic work is directly you know kind of there's an aesthetic there of course but it's making a social commentary does that help it keep it keep it fresh because i know obviously your lyrics are are very much in that vein what do you think
1: well, yeah i mean definitely especially in this country where we've got this kind of regression going on it's not easy it's not difficult to be uh, kind of politicized and kind of want to comment on it, especially, you know, at the moment. I mean, but that never really changes, you know. I'm 55, and for, except for a kind of short period when I was, you know, a small child, and the Tony Blair years, it's been the Tories all the way, Mm -hmm. All, all of my life, yeah. I mean, you know. And they're um, they're not they're not easy to dislike, are they? Really? Mm. <laughs> I mean, they, they certainly like give you lots of opportunity to uh, mm. to be angry, really. I don't know if you
4: find that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I I find now, like yeah, I mean, yeah. As as far as I'm concerned, like music and no, just art. You know, m- music and art, and art, full stop. Really is um is um political, isn't it? If you're if you're aware of where you are in life, if you're if if you're in any way leaning towards an existential overview where you're at, that's a political thing. Unless somehow you're fucking like you've got your own state that you're not telling anyone about. So you know art is about Exploring where you are in the world and what the world means to you, and giving it to other people as a, as a point of reference, really, right. to enjoy, to to, to find ugly, to talk about, to to explore, to make your own version of, to dance with, to fuck with, whatever it is, it's just an exchange of the world in your little window for a split second, and like to ignore, it's it's always political. Buying milk's political, really. Choose where you buy them out. If you think mm. about it enough, and, um, I'm I'm on the explicitly kind of ooh, like cartoon-like political because I found that I, I wanted to cut through it. You know? And like I'm from, I am from the birth. When I started voting was the birth of neoliberalism, which is the the birth of Uber bullshit, the the the, the mega liars, the real cunts the Cheshire Cat fucking drone bombing scumbag cunts, a lot of them, Um, you know, with branding in front of it. So it's like I want to use that kind of weird black and white, sinister, globalised fucking everyone's happy nursery rhyme socialism and and fuck with it and, and sing about it. Um, but I think, you know, my generation, probably every generation, but my, my, my generation, the problem is it's not like I am clearly on, I, I'm, I find myself as, as far left leaning as I've ever been. Um, but I'm just as fucked off with the left as I am on the right right now hmm. because of the internet, because of pious keyboard hmm. Um but not as much. I still despise the right a lot more, or what the <laughs> right stand for. But like, I find myself battling on a surface level with the left as much because they're just full of shit. Mm. There's a lot of bullshit to cut through. Yeah. But obviously, I am vehemently fighting against the right ideologically, anyway. Mm. You know, I'm, but yeah, it's my interest. But it's just a very bizarre time to be alive politically, I think.
3: And as a as a lyricist with we uh, a with a band that's got. Good platform now. You can say explicit
4: yeah. things, right? You can you can be explicit, and yeah, you've got can, an
3: audience. We can create a mob, finally. Do you yeah, know what I mean? yeah really. <laughs> No, um, yeah, yeah. No, we, you mean that? I know. You, I know you're not fucking about when you say that. No, right? I don't want to
4: create a mob. The, the idea of creating a mob to me is is a, is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, that's a real responsibility. I don't want that. I don't want that. It's too much. But you know, an audience. Yeah, definitely. We've got a good audience and. We always just wanted to spark conversation, just a a, a level of consciousness beyond what I was getting when I was going to gigs. Um, But it's all personal. It's not party political, it is all personal political. It's all about where you stand in the world Mm. and then who you vote for after it. It's not Mm. up to me, but it's up to me to try and start a
3: conversation about where you think you feel or you are in the world and what you're up to. It's interesting because, so your living room pictures, for example, right, there's something, there's something about, you making an image of a working class family at a certain place in a certain time, mm. uh, and there's a beauty to it, there's an aesthetic element to it, in the mm-hmm. same way that a lyric can be beautiful, or, or a riff can be brilliant, or a drum solo, or whatever can be beautiful, but it has an impact. Is it less direct when it's a photograph? Do you, when, you, when you're making that, that work, for example, is it the personal politic that you're expressing through that lens, that you're seeing through that lens?
1: Well, I certainly, you know, when I was making that work or making any of the work that I made, I enjoy it and kind of uh, what I see in the work is not necessarily what other people see. I also think that, you know, the work that I make often is quite kind of ugly and brutal when I make it to most people, but ultimately it's the ugly and brutal work that survives. And a good analogy is the kind of music business. If you you kind of think about the early 80s, the bands that the major labels were promoting them at that period, who knows who any of them are now? Mm. But all the indie bands, like, you know, the ones we were just talking about, like, you know, there's Joy Division, And whatever, and you know, Echo and the Bunnyman everyone's interested in those bands. You speak to young people, they're interested in those bands. I know Echo and the Bunnyman were a major label band, but they started on an indie. But you know, so if you make things that you think are kind of cutting edge and maybe are a bit too hard for the masses, maybe when they're made, but with time that will change. Yeah, and I've kind of always stuck to that principle, and people kind of come round to what I do, kind of often years after I've made it. I'm not particularly worried, I kind of just keep on going and uh, kind of find ways to survive. And ultimately, you know, I make the work for me. and I make the work because I enjoy making the work and if other people can engage with it, then that's great. But if they don't, then I'm not kind of worried about it too much. It's you know?
3: funny that about how the work ages differently with time and matures isn't it. So for example, on the way up, I was listening to Six music and they played um, that selector tr- tune, uh, Too Much Pressure. Mm. I remember at the time thinking that it was a bit bit light and half-assed. But I'm, I'm belting up the motorway mm. and it's on a really good sound system in my motor and it's a digital file that's really big and booming. And, I, and it sounds completely different and it sounds punky as well as it's got that scar drive to it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it's funny and, and you can say that with, like literally I read, I read Catch-22. About 30 years after I first <laughs> read it, and it's mm. a completely different book. Mm. And it's interesting. Um, and you mentioned like The Clash, for example. I didn't really dig The Clash to me, it took, at the time, it sounded a bit light, it sounded quite sort of punk light. Mm. And then you listening yeah. to it now, and, and now I can get it. I mean, do you have that experience with music? And wh- how do you think your music's going to be? How is it going to wither? On- is it going to wither on a vine or fruit again? Um, <laughs> I see. It was a stupid question.
4: Well, no, I like what I'd like is to just grow with, grow with it. Like our albums just become more fluent as we go along, definitely. So I like age-wise, I think I think people will appreciate, especially in what you're saying about um, about like the harder bands or the, the grittier bands or the basically the bands that weren't very popular at the time suddenly being like you know, you can get their T-shirt in H&M, like Joy Division, you know, like. I think our first album will be the most popular album in years to come. Uh, Well, out of the two that are out at the moment, I think our third album is our best album, artistically speaking. Um, And I think our second was the most um, friendly. (laughs) So like, which is an interesting thing. I've I've thought about how our music would age just because it's an interesting point. But like for me, like things like Putting things in context, like Public Enemy for example, or Fun Boy 3 or... Like songs that I enjoy, Ghost Town is another example. Songs that just, you know, when you realise what they're about and not what it meant to people at the time. The second Fun
1: Boy 3 album, Waiting, the David Byrne produced one, is one of the best records I've ever heard. I mean, that album is absolutely crazy, it's so good. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I listened to it all the time when it came out in 84 or whatever, and I still listen to it now. So mm. again,
3: but especially yeah. Breaking Up for me was like a disaster. Yeah. I, I couldn't bear to listen to Fun, Fun Boy, Boy 3.
4: fucking
3: sick. Though. No, but I have to, see, I'll, <laughs> have to, I'll have to check that again. I, I haven't yeah, yeah, yeah. to it. That's, see, that's, I, I envy that. You
4: get to listen to hours, <laughs> like, oh, fucking. Because, yeah. I, that's it. Things just, you know, for me, I, I wasn't around. My dad, used to, he, was an art, he was an artist and then became an art teacher in factored Britain to make some money and then went back to just being an artist. And, like, he talked to me about those times and it makes things a lot more fascinating. Yeah.
3: Um, well, that, was that in, is your dad in Newport? Is, is, is that with, uh, he, he studied
4: in Newport, yeah, yeah. when did Joe te- Strummer was there. Did um, he teach at Newport? No, he taught at Calcott. I don't know where that is. What? Just outside it's in South Wales. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like he was he, he yeah, he went to Glasgow Art School
3: in the old Macintosh building and then mm. Newport. stayed in Newport. Newport's one of those fascinating places. It's much maligned. It's got like this crystal of kind of demonisation and and kind of like the work the white working class and the marginality of that, right? Yes,
4: yeah, the butt. It's like you know the Skoda of towns. Like you know, yeah. it's the butt of a lot of jokes. You go there, it's, there's not a lot to laugh about in fucking... a piece. Goldie looking chain came from there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the that was yeah. a whole story. <laughs> people often sing the Newport song. They want to say I was born there, but like yeah. you know, you, look, you know, as as your work can like. There's nothing funny about Thatcher's nightmare, man. there's <laughs> no. not. But the people there are fucking yeah. amazing. Well, I right, like was, South Walesians. You know, like you go the to those people. They are. They're, they're yeah. beautiful people, and like you know,
3: any of those places
4: too. It. It's all stereotypical, but it's true. Any know? of
3: those places where it was completely dominated by steel industry, pubs on every corner, and then within about eight years, they're all gone. And what you've got is, have still got all the pubs and you've got the passport office, that's it. Mm-hmm. Right in the DVLA or whatever it is. And so don't people... They, don't they make the money there still? Isn't the what coin, mean, isn't
1: is the it... mint there? I don't know. Royal mint? Yes. <laughs> yeah, really? I thought it was.
4: I might be, be wrong. Already. Somewhere in South Wales. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't know. No. But yeah, I mean, now it's, a, you know, dereliction, a couple of cash for gold shops and chasers.
3: Mm.
4: It's fucking bleak yeah you know like it's a, it's a weird thing like there's a lot of things that I, like i've noticed recently about high street cultures high streets are all fucked not that i was you know if if they weren't all fucked it wasn't like i'd spend all my time on the high
3: street i was like, gonna I say i can't imagine you go no nah, don't, nah, don't get me
4: wrong I, like you know i i do think about what i wear i'm not i'm not going to pretend i don't care about how i look i'm not going to fucking be one of those cunts but like I wouldn't spend it, but it, there's a thing for it. There's an importance to it. And like, I just, but what I've found now is this weird like conveyor belt of consumerism where like they will go to those like retail parks and shit like that. I just find it really weird. I think it, It's really weird. It's a lack of, I guess, personality, independent shops, independent whatever. But it's just a weird fucking country, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just looking at it like Britain is just a strange place. You
1: know? The drop in prices of everything has allowed people to can still keep consuming large amounts of things on less and less money as everything's got cheaper and cheaper. Mm. You know, the, you can go to Primark or whatever and you can like buy shitloads of clothes for what yeah. you used to be able to buy one item for. Mm. But then, you know, consequently it's made in Bangladesh and the buildings fall down, yeah? yeah so, yeah, yeah. but it does, people want to consume the kind of fast fashion thing. Yeah. It's kind of where that goes from here, I don't know whether it'll be back in two or three years' time once everyone's forgotten COVID, I, I'm not sure. But The thing with the f- clothes factories in Leicester, when they were t- kind of yeah. turning a blind eye to it, happening here, weren't they?
3: I yeah, mean, entirely, yeah, Yeah. I think it's... This is... Mean, like, what I, what I really... I, I'd love to speak to... Like an Don't mind if I snap a little while, just for me,
4: right? No, it's fine. Is I all right? It's a good camera, that. Yeah, it's a bit fucked. Um, <laughs> like... I, I just see, like, I'd love to speak to an economist about where they think this is all headed properly. Like, because I, you know, you can make guesses about what, but like, for me, it's like fucking... Surely this has all got to collapse at some point. Like, just walking around London and seeing all these empty buildings that, like, you know, no, no one can afford to live in, that are occupied, seemingly, yeah. by
3: I think it's actually that, the suburbs, though, that are coming back, right, so i cycle around. London, you go through the centre and it's all dead and you go out to the high streets, the restaurants are buzzing, there's lots of people. And I feel like you might get this weird inversion going on. I think it's the might save things. But yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I've seen that obviously, you know, uh, when I was a kid, you know, we lived in Woking and it's 15 minutes to Waterloo and my mm. father worked near Oxford circus. Um, and you know, that's what everyone did, you know, um, and then of course, you know, I moved it into town, I've lived in Tower Hamlets and Hackney since I was a, a student, you know, in the late 19, mid to late 1980s. And the idea now that people are now gonna go back to the suburbs, I'm not so sure. that like eventually it will happen for a while, but people don't want to travel. They don't want to commute anymore. Whether people can work at home, but whether working at home means you're well off enough to live in a light, large house and have an office, or whether you're, five 30 somethings in a cramped flat and you're all sitting there with your laptops on your desk mm. and the, the internet's going down do they
4: really want to do that i don't mm. think so do you know mm. um yeah it's weird isn't it it's just like the, i'd like lo, i'd love to I'd, I'd just love to see a shift in that, that 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 perspective of of what is important like what a working week should look like for mentally well people and what, what that would do, like, you know, a mentally well worker is a lot better worker than someone who's yeah. fucking knackered and resentful.
3: Isn't that one, and and one of the, one of the Four urges? Four day a week
4: would be good, I think,
0: yeah. that they should
1: do be. that, yeah. People can choose if they do Fridays or
3: Mondays. <laughs> Isn't that one of the urges of being an artist, right, that you can set your own agenda and you can't, you know, you, you're not answering to anyone? Spencer, you talk to. There's mm. a lot, like, i got loads of mates
4: who haven't got a boss, but are fucked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. You know like Well for me, yeah, I, I feel like uh I'm definitely outside the premises of normal life. I mean I'm um uh, I'm able to exist, make my work and I interface with society. But whether I'm here or I'm in New York, I'm not really kind of involved very much. I'm lucky enough that I'm kind of financially secure enough to be able to do that, I think, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but when I was in my 20s and in my 30s, everything was much cheaper. Mm-hmm. So even though I, you know, I wasn't kind of so successful with my work, I had a huge studio on Brick Lane that was 50 pounds a month between five and six, pounds ten, £10 each. A whole, and it came with heating, and it, you know, and uh, we could live there if we wanted to. Or, but you know, I didn't bother living there. I could, you know, I was able to, you know, buy a house for forty grand. Mm. You know, all this kind of mm. thing. And then you could live really cheaply and just make work. You know, r- throw the odd kind of rave party to raise some money when you needed a bit of extra cash. Mm. You can't do that now. No. They've kind of made everything really, really expensive. Mm. Everything costs money. You know, the the kind of um, what's the name of the American uh, comedian, the one who died of the heart attack in '91? It was like Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks. Yeah, they put the fucking dollar sign on everything. You know, they have. And that's really that's Mm. happened now. Everything costs money. The only thing here that they haven't done yet is the NHS. But you know, if they continue, yeah, yeah.
3: So I want to talk about the work again for a bit. Yes. Anaglypta. Is that, am is, I pronouncing it right? No, Anaglypta. Anaglypta, not yes. Anaglypta. No, no, no. For you, is, is this some sort of watershed piece? You know, is it, is, is it, is it, uh, does it mean a transition more towards your painting work?
2: Or, or? Well,
1: what's happened is, especially over the last 10 years as I've got older, I've painted more and more. I still take photos, but when I was living in Jerusalem, and I needed to, I really, because I have been painting, I've had painting shows since the 1990s, but when I was living in Jerusalem, I really kind of, I was painting every day, and I moved to Jerusalem in 2007, and that was the kind of, since then, it's been every day, and I now got to the point where the painting is very resolved and it's kind of going places. But I have this huge backlog of photography and I've been very fortunate to meet Johnny Lou, the designer who runs Johnny Lou Studios. And we have a kind of program to kind of work through my backlog of photography. And it doesn't mean that I'm not going to take any more pictures, but I'm lucky enough that I, kind of, I don't do anything else other than make art. I don't have a job. I don't teach, you know, um, yeah therefore i find that i have an because i'm a kind of workaholic i have enough time to make pictures and spend all day painting oh. so i mean i'm mainly making photographs now kind of individual works taken with a large format camera yeah, yeah. and each subject is different and so i only need to maybe make 10 or 12 a year yeah, yeah. and then i've got The camera in my pocket when I'm moving around and I'm making the kind of visual diary pictures anyway That's not going to stop. So I can kind of dedicate myself six and a half days a week to painting
3: Tell me about the Hackney Riviera. I don't know if you've seen it Joe, beautiful like you shot it. Tell me about it It was like last couple of years ago. I'll give you one before you leave Amazing, amazing set of pictures shot down on the uh, on Hackney Marshes, which is now really popular a swimming spot uh, along the River Lee but then oh, okay, you, yeah. you captured this, those are paintly images, right? Yes, they're, 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 they're very
1: comfortable, like Yeah, <laughs> exactly,
3: they're almost <laughs> like, con, this is, exactly, they're, they're beautiful and as you said before, you haven't really concentrated on obvious beauty before, right? No, no, but the
1: kids, you know, my older son and his mates, you know, heard about this kind of swimming spot and it was during the kind of beautiful summer of yeah. 2018 when it was really hot. England were doing well in the football, and suddenly this kind of swimming spot appeared from nowhere on the river around here. And for a moment, for a couple of months, it was enough people to make it kind of interesting, but it wasn't really crowded. And then what's, mm. come, what's happened now is that Hackney Council have cleared the, the sides of all the, the undergrowth, all the undergrowth from, Orange. Side, from the sides <laughs> of the river. And now it's become this kind of rave in the river spot and it's kind of something completely different. Yeah But so my pictures just concentrate on that one month period during the football Amazing. And it's about a moment. Mm. It's not about necessarily that spot It's about this yeah. moment where it was hot like it was in the hot summer of 1976 yeah. and you could just feel that it was just a vintage summer and just a yeah. really kind of nice moment in time. So I made, I just, for that month, I concentrated on taking
3: photographs again, yeah, yeah. solidly, and I made the, the book. It's know? funny, when I heard about it, I felt caught yes. wind of it before you published it. I thought, oh, Wapplington does acne marshes. <laughs> oh, it's going to be all grim and, you know, yeah. you know like, I don't know, sort of uh, shopping trolleys in the river and that. But yes. what emerged is like, wow, it's just absolute beautiful London which is, is very rarely captured, they're very difficult to capture. Mm. Um, and I thought it was interesting. So, what do you think about, let's talk about the beauty in, in what you do, because my opinion of, of, of your music is that there's this, there's this underlying engine of groove to it that, yeah. then, that then pushes it away from a lot of the other heavy music that, I, that I've listened to, and changes it somewhere, and then you put the lyrics within that groove, and it's transformative somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I
4: I, like, I mean, I grew up on hip hop and stuff personally. And our guitarist, the other guy writes a lot of stuff with me. Got like minimal techno and techno and stuff like that and like other shit. But like my main influence is hip hop and jungle and stuff. But I think there's there's a sense of like Britishness in it that's from something motoric. Um, that the underlying thing is, is the same thing that you get in Echo and the Bunnymen. You know, really, there's a, there's a layer of flamboyance at, at the top of that band, right? But underneath is still this, like, like m- motoric thing. And you look at, like, mid-century modernism, anything that, like, is rife in this country, it's all motoric, it's quite a motoric keep your chin down and get shit done kind of country and I think it's just in there. I think also something ugly about the mechanism of our music which is what I'm more interested in. The same reason why I'm more interested in, in your style of photography and like you know Billingham or, or, or Larry Clark or even stuff. It's like for me the most interesting beautiful people are the broken. And like, it's not the flamboyant, you know. I, I, never, I've never empathized with with a disco tune. Not to say that disco isn't fucking amazing. And there's a drive in that, but for me, there's nothing about it that, that grabs me. It's about like, I don't know. You know, I'm not from the ghetto or anything, but it's just the realism, you know. I, I hmm. like, I like Mike Lee. Do you hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, 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 And um, I think that's what you're trying to. Bring out the mundanity of daily life to, to highlight the beauty
3: of yeah. people. But there is a theatricality about your shows. I'm a, you know, you, you, you yeah. go over the top, you? and you and you and you you under, you under you know what could be perceived as quite a macho world. You 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 undermine that. You, you 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 talk about the lyrics talk about that you know toxic masculinity. It's kind of a hint at it, and it it kind of undermines things. Do you think? In a very macho way. Yeah.
4: yeah, kind of. I mean, I think, you know, we, you know it's the same as what fucking uh, David Byrne says in his book, um, how music works, yeah, is like, it is a theatre, but like, my theatre is me. Like, if I'm in a bad mood, I just make sure my mascara is longer, so you can see I'm in a bad mood at the back of the room. I'm not going to lie and pretend everything's good that day, but if I'm happy, I'm extra happy. If I'm sad, I'm extra sad. It's just. It's a give, giving. Yeah. So you, you want a dialogue with an audience, you got to give them something yeah. first. So they go, fuck. That's your wife. a good
3: point. You, you, that's, I think that that's really important in art, all kind of art, and it, to leave nothing in the dressing room, right? Put mm. it all out there. And I feel like there's something that you you've done as well. Like it does feel quite, like you're saying. You you, you said earlier that you you're not afraid to fall on your ass in public. Mm. that's important right yes of course
1: yeah because everything now is about kind of creating the perfect this and the perfect that especially you know the way that the art world is commodified now that people are producing objects to be sold or they were until covid sold at art fairs and transported around quickly and easy and then you've got this whole kind of level of people who have come up who are art fair artists and they make commodity items to be sold at art fairs Mm. and everything is really slick everything Mm. looks slick everything is beautifully made you go into galleries in new york and everything is perfect and it's just terrible Mm. and you just you know it's like the kind of the art that was made in the the colonial period at the end end of the 19th century that Mm. all of this work's all been forgotten now you know um you know, it's just trash. And I just feel that that's where we're at again, you know, and it's all kind of sped up. And, uh, Mm. you know, there's just so much bollocks being Mm. made that I'm trying to kind of stay out of that Mm. and just kind of continue with my own thing. Mm. And I kind of, um, but somehow I kind of managed to do it without having to really interface too much with that world. Which is
3: nice, right? Yes. I believe yes. all of us sitting around the table were fathers. Am I right? Yeah. 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 How do you think becoming a father has impacted what you do and how you do it? I mean,
4: I, I care much, much less about what other people think of me now. Cause I've got one person that I really fucking gotta work for and be, be better at. Like, looking after myself so that like better is in like mental health and physical health for me at the moment is like oh you know like suddenly surprise a sobriety had a different thing it's like well you know i can't be late for picking my daughter up or things like that just li- it sounds just really basic but mm. What it means is, is you have a self-preservation where you're like, actually, all those people that are obsessing about making people feel shit about themselves, just meaningless cunts. Mm. And that what you do is beautiful and important. Mm. Because that's what you'd say to your daughter or your son, right? You wouldn't be like, your pictures aren't good enough, you can't put it on the fridge. you go, yeah, you're trying, it's beautiful, you're a beautiful thing, amazing, crack on. You encourage the people you love, so you realise you've got to encourage yourself and fuck them off. Yeah. Nick? Yeah, I think that's what, you know,
1: pretty true. You're definitely gonna... You have to think about uh, keeping yourself healthier. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly brought about some lifestyle changes for me. Mm. You know, when I first had children in my thirties, late thirties, so um you know that's all been positive positive. you know and then kind of leads you back as they get older into other things creatively like my oldest son is really into hip-hop and you know um i wasn't skateboarding every day for a number of years and <laughs> so yeah. he was uh, you know down at mile end and so i was there all the time so that was good yeah. for me too till i didn't destroy my knee again but anyway but yeah
3: I found out, you know, like that, that whole thing about um, when you when you become a father, sort of, like, oh, I'm gonna get proper job now, right? I always thought that was bullshit because if mm. you're gonna all of a sudden fucking change everything about yourself, what sort of a father are you gonna be? Yeah, I would. I, w- I would have.
4: Because uh, obviously, I, you know, like you mentioned already, I'm lucky enough to have a platform in which COVID nineteen isn't this fucking black wall of despair. I, you know, our audience have kept us afloat and supported us throughout this, which is great. But if I had a kid, I wouldn't just suddenly stop making music. I'd be like, now I've got to get a office. I'm just going to say office job because I don't even know what that would look like. But it's just not. It's not in my my, my like my. I learned from my father, you know. Mm. Like, well, and my mum who was in an office job and drank herself to death. Mm. Like, that's not success to me. No, she I was know. much more well-off monetarily than my father. Yeah. She was suicidally alcoholic mm. because of her levels of stress and want to give me a better life. But thinking that a better life means money. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm looking into it a lot parenting stuff now. I'm reading Philippa Perry's book and stuff like that on attachment parenting. Yeah. And it's like, there's nothing more... You can give your child then, then your attention yeah. um, and your, your love and your, like, just engaging with them more than just, you know, not someone to deal with, but to be with and just mm. engage with and have a fucking, have interaction with on a, on a, on a day, you know, which is something my mum did when we were in, in the same room together. She was an amazing woman, amazing friend of mine and, a, and an amazing strong mother, but she sacrificed mm. 90% of our life. Together for a fucking, for, for, a, for a better,
3: you know, better, a monetary it's better a future. a story echoes through so many people's lives, right, about, you know, that commitment to just getting a bigger house and the bigger mm-hmm. commuting, and get, getting away from the room, whereas you realise that the reality was right on your doorstep. But tell me, how does the, the mid-century dream of the rock and roll life, how does that articulate with how you are now? I've never fucking, like... Like, for me, I'm, I'm like,
4: what I want to do is be able to do this until I can't make music anymore. So, like, and, and realistically, you start, you get better at making music. More people want to see you. Even if you make the same kind of level of music, the longer you play, the more likely you are to play bigger rooms because more people will have heard of you, and that's your shit, or, or, you know, or you're not, people aren't talking about you. Over time, the rooms will grow a little bit, at least. So, like, as long as I can just do this for as long as I'm breathing, I'm all right, you know? But, um, I don't know, man. Like, the whole, all the fucking, I just, I was brought up to not, like, you know, I, I did a lot of drugs. And, like, I was very wasteful in that sense of the word. I wasted a lot of time and, and, and had a lot of bullshit conversations, got myself in some really dark places in my life. That's about as bullshit that side of the world as I went. And that was before we were popular. I'm just glad that I fucking straightened up before I had the opportunity to mm. to just take whatever I fucking wanted. And mm. you know, I can now. I could take advantage of it in a really destructive way and I wouldn't. So I'm lucky, really. But all that side of it, I mean, like, you know, like, it's that spinal tap thing. I think, like, I'd want someone to fucking hang me if I... Turn out like some of those,
3: but it's so You know, when you look at an idols gig, there's a lot of fucking energy there, and yeah. you must be popping when you come off stage like that. You must be fucking in a place that I can only imagine. Never have done it myself. It, then, it, those things are real. You know, the things that do are lot of cliches. How'd you come come down from that? Like. Oh, I'm you, sure you've got. I mean, I'm sure you've got techniques, and it's a fucking long conversation. But yeah. those things are real, aren't they? They don't just disappear because you change an attitude. It must be quite a tough thing to negotiate. I
4: mean, it's just realistically, I think because it's not the situation that alleviates. We fucking make it. We give like it's a it's a high energy show, mm. right? Yeah. So we're knackered afterwards. Yeah. The yeah. come down is just like we need to rest and enjoy it. <laughs> I have a few beers after the show, mm. you know, mm. like, whatever it is, you know, like, you used to just get fucked up every night on tour. Mm. Just, just, you know, drink and do drugs for three months. Mm. I haven't done that for years, because yeah, I'd yeah. die. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky, it's knackering. Just, like, we just did at Abbey Road Studios, like, three live sessions, and, like, yesterday, and I was just, like, Fucked after it, yeah. knackered, I forgot how tiring it is.
3: And is that a mixture of the actual performative, just the physical exhaustion of it, or the tension, the nervousness, it's the creative balance, is it a whole mixture? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So it's like, you know, it's, it's adrenaline and, and like, really, I fucking love it. I love it, I love it. And I cry a lot at shows, I cry, because mm. you're just in it and it feels physically
3: yeah. like ecstasy. It's is a dream, though, it? right? I mean, I mean, you you started out with, with like engaging with music. That do you have you imagined what? It, I, I mean, I count this time. Well, I've, I've been one. to I've Road uh, what
1: studios it's like to a few times. And I have my friend John Coxon, who was Spring Hill Jack, and is the guitarist in Spiritualized, mm-hmm. and he has a an improv label called Treader, and I've been in that room with him where the Beatles used to record, you know, and uh, watched him do kind of improvised sessions. It's a kind
3: of magical space, you know, mm. um, there. So I can, yeah, I mean... But see, talking, I'm thinking about like the, the creative, the quench of the creative first. I mean, that, but you, that, you're drained, right? You're off, off stage. That must be a, like must feel like you're sated for a bit. I don't uh,
4: know, like, because I, 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 I also want to like you know, I do all of our artwork, and I like I want to write more, and I want to I want to design shirts. Hopefully, not in some, <laughs> get them made in some fucking. But you know, <laughs> like you know, I, I I I I want to make films, and I want to write screenplays, and I want to like. I just think it's just like some people get up in the morning, and they want to. They're not a spectator of life. They want to be part of the world and do something. Some people are spectators and that's great. Yeah. I just, I think, you know, it's not for me, like the show is amazing.
3: Yeah.
4: Uh, it's not the end for me. No, 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 it's no. like, it, there's no fear of it ending. I'm always going to make something. Yeah. So it's fine. So
3: when do you, you know get, a, when you get a book back from pressing, do you get that sense of creative? Like, it's like, like the snooker player pots a hole you know, no. the red goes into the corner. Does it feel like that?
1: No, I mean for me, the kind of the moments I really like are when I'm making the work or after I've made the work. So if I say if I'm taking a picture, and I, I just kind of instinctively know if it's good. Mm. I kind of feel good and maybe I'll go and have a beer or if I'm painting I finish a painting and I know it's a good one or I'm in the studio and I'm painting and I have a kind of breakthrough because often you're painting and you could be painting for months and they're just shit and you're trying some to go yeah. somewhere new and then you get a breakthrough and that that for me is is the kind of moments that I live for I think obviously you know there are other moments you know I've had one person show at the Tate of course you're at the opening and you're in the fucking Tate and it's your show Mm, and you do feel a little bit then that like, yeah, maybe, you know, there's something (laughs) there and you feel a little bit of kind of proud in the moment. And then what's, you know, you wake up the next morning and you just think, Oh my God, and then you just want it to go away. <laughs> <So> it's kind <laughs> of really, not, yeah. How so? Yeah. Well, I much prefer having shows in places where I don't live, because I can. It, you get very <sighs> depressed afterwards, yeah. And if you can leave that place, then the depression goes sooner. I see. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if I have a show in London, I'm in London. I have a show in New York, I'm in New York. I just want to go away somewhere. Yeah, and maybe come back towards the end, but that's not always
4: isn't possible. A funny thing, isn't it? That, like, because it's kind of like what I'm getting from what you're saying is that when you when you're making the art, yeah. so like really, it's like your that's your part in the world, isn't it? When you're making it, it's like the gratification is in being a part of your world that you're making. It's like playing life painting, that's us making, that's us being. The gratification, what other people will think is like the potting of the Red Bull or whatever. That's, you don't score the goal. It's like, it's being part of the world and making something beautiful. The, the making is, is, that's the bit, that's the bit. And there's no gratification after it. You just make something else. Do you know what I'm saying?
3: Process.
4: Yeah, that's, process that's, not
3: destination.
4: Yeah, because the the destination is death. Exactly. And that that's where there's a sense of depression after it, if if that's you feel that's all you have, like bands that set themselves goal I you know like I never like right I, Abbey Road. That's it. That's it. It's like it doesn't work like that for me. I'm just or album four. That's my, in my mind now, the whole time for the last six months, album four, that's all I think about, in in terms of gratification, it's not, well, we've played Abbey Road, because then you, I would be like, strap me up, I've done Abbey Road now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've played Glassman, oh, I've done this, it's like, they're not the gratification, it's about making that fucking painting, or making that song, where you're like in it going, this is fucking amazing. Mm. Fluency, you know.
3: So I wanna I wanna talk about the latest projects and new projects. So I feel like we're we're talking for a long time now. Uh how long are we going for? Been going? Is this what uh, you're doing at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, these are Yeah, kind let's, of talk about that. let's talk about that. Based what? on
1: uh Russian constructivism. These paintings uh are kind of uh and they're kind of where the world is at now. They're uh, kind of uh semi-abstract uh, modernist paintings, I guess you would describe them. I've been looking a lot at uh, Russian art from a 100 years ago during the kind of the end of um, the beginning of the Soviet Union and, of course, the, the last pandemic. And mm. then I kind of uh, started to make these paintings that would kind of have these kind of loose connections to uh, Malevich and uh, supermatism and Russian constructivism. Um, that also kind of feed into music. So a lot of the, the images from that kind of period were used as a cover art for a lot of uh, post-punk records mm. from the early 80s. Yeah. You know, the raincoats used a lot of Malevich um, and also, you know, Squitty Politty and whatever. Yeah. So all these kind of things fed back into these paintings that uh, then um, have these kind of weird, Russiany scandy kind of titles but in fact are just northern slang that comes from my granddad and my uncle. Oh, that's great. <laughs> like yeah. Sumat, which is, you know, something. Um <sighs> yeah, is yeah. one of them. And then um what was I going to say something else about them? But, I was uh, wondering about yes. that. You
3: know that constructivist thing in the early 80s, and that with. The, yes. I made a connection. I thought it was just straight like leftist politics, right? Yeah. But do you think it was more than that? Was it any deeper than that? That why that those those images were used? Yeah, on I think. That I that, thought it was a like, you know, red think, Wedge and all that, and you know.
1: I think a, a lot a lot of that art, uh, a lot of it hadn't been seen until the kind of late 70s, early 80s when basically a lot of it was hidden away in Russia and uh, a lot of um, people hadn't seen a lot of it. And slowly historians were being allowed into the Soviet Union and uh, Union. Jewish uh, emigres were leaving the Soviet Union and being allowed to go to <coughs> Israel. And of course I'm Jewish and my I'm a German Jew, but you know, even then there was a point where my family would have migrated from Russia. To Germany and, and Switzerland, but um, so uh, there's a and a lot of the, the artists are Jewish, and so I wasn't really particularly interested in any of this till I found myself living in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah like, and then, one, know, way, one uh, way to engage with your Judaism yeah, is to go so to the Holy Mount and Obviously, of Zion. you know I'm an atheist, so you know um, things that Jewish people have done interest me more than the actual religion itself, but obviously there are a lot of things within the religion, that are interesting, kind of historically. But you know, and this is one of the things about Judaism that interests me is that you can give up being a Catholic, you can give up being a Protestant, you can't give up being a Jew, (laughs) even if
3: if you're not religious, it's just that you are a Jew. John, album four, you said you're already thinking about it. Yeah. What's happening? <laughs> um, uh, what's the process with you guys? I mean, is it, we'll do you, do you, book, do you book, book like a target date in the studio and then work towards it? Or? Not normally, but we set ourselves a date this time
4: because of COVID and the mm. fact that we've like been gifted loads of time because we're getting, you know, we're paying ourselves a wage. We're like fucking, right, we're not touring. Let's get another album done. So we booked ourselves in the studio in February. It's fucking terrifying because we haven't finished the song yet. But we always do the same thing. Just start, start, I'll come up with a, a title for the album and the artwork and a concept of what we're writing around. Oh, so each album's a concept, album. So you start. Kind yeah, of, yeah, I mean artistic direction, basically. Yeah, yeah. So that the guys, we're all on the same page. Because otherwise, you know, we spent a long time trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And the best way is to be like, you know, give ourselves a palette that we all work towards. Yeah. Just stay within the lines like a bit and you know it just means we work quicker together Mm. if we know what the theme is so ultra mono was was started with the the phrase ultra mono that i came up with and the idea about it momentary acceptance of the self mindfulness and a drive with self-assurance you know just just believe in yourself and move forward and how would that sound where do you steal that from you know what do you what, what what music encompasses that sense of self-awareness and a holistic self of
3: being in mm. the now. You know. And the album drops the end of this month, right? Yes. And what does uh, that mean? What, yeah. what does that mean these days? I'm not a music journalist. Um, how, what's the, pros, the process of a, an album dropping these days? Because it, it's so different from what it once was, right? I mean, I you, mean it a, means you, you, you,
4: if you sell enough records, you can get to number one if you give a shit about stuff <laughs> like that. Um, and then... I mean it means a lot less. Yeah. People not buying records, and, you know. But there's, we you know. there's a non-linear kind of
1: thing with, with records now. Mm. Like kids will pick up things from the past, won't they? In a way that when I was a kid it was just what was new and was mm. coming out now. Mm. Whereas my 15-year-old son, he likes like the latest grime but he likes 90s hip hop. Mm. Mm. But I wasn't listening, well, in 1980, I wasn't listening to anything from 1965. I mean, you know, mm. that wasn't, or 1950 or something, or
3: whatever. you know. Yeah, whatever yeah. That, you know that well, that's, cool. that's why I think it's interesting with a contemporary band like yourselves. You have got this big audience. I, I get the feeling you have, right? Mm-hmm. They measure that. I mean, I know, you know, your PR people tell me that, you know, the album's got a lot of pre-sales. How, how do you think that audience is has is- caught on to what you're doing and he's digging you so much? We built ourselves on word of Mouth, that's why it took us 11 years. Because like,
4: we just went out and played like it was our last show ever, every night. Because no other band was doing that at the time. Mm. I never saw a band that fucking looked like they were playing for their lives. And I wanted that, because I heard stories about bands that were, I've heard stories about the birthday party. Like the, where the fuck, where are they? Where the, the fuck's birthday my birthday party? The birthday party were amazing
1: live. Mm. Yeah, um, he was like, the way that he moved across the stage, and then the two guitarists used to kind of split, and then Tracy Pugh, the first bassist, used to dress like a cowboy. Mm. And I remember, f- and he just stand there with those leather trousers on. And the thing I remember at the time that really got me is he had a moustache. I was like, you can't be in a punk band with a moustache. <laughs> <laughs> you can't,
4: why has he got a moustache? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But yeah, you, you know, he's just, I don't know. We just went out and, and just played because we wanted to play. And that's how we built our audience. Because, you know, it was mainly 35 to 65 year old men going, I haven't seen a band do this for fucking ages. I'm really grateful you are doing it. I feel really? like
3: you've got a lot of youngers that dig it though as well. Yeah, I mean, there, at like... the start, oh, when, right, we, yeah, when
4: yeah. we were starting out, our bread and butter were, were, yeah. were people that missed bands
3: that gave a shit yeah. about playing live. I think there's a massive first set, and I think that's the Huck audience is, is all about that as well. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like you want a bit, someone that's got something to fucking say, and that can still, and you can still groove to, and you can still get, you know, um, that groove is really important, and, and the beauty is still part of it, mm. you know. Right, we've talked for ages. I'm just going to ask one more question. If you had to take, it's a bit of a desert island disc thing I do. Great. A bit corny. I like this shit. One book, first of all, that if you had to. Take one into your coffin, what would the book be? Giovanni's Room. James Baldwin. Mm. You're the second person this month that said that.
4: (laughs) Really? Well, it's probably because of the Black Lives Matter stuff. Probably, yeah. That he's been put back into people's consciousness or that they've read it for the first time. That's my favourite book, I think. Yeah. yeah. There's a scene where he's writing about falling in love with the guy and they've been out all night in Paris and they've managed to find a bar at like five in the morning and he's just falling in, like watching him fuck around with like the guy he's falling in love with Giovanni is just prancing around the bar and like he's just admiring I think I'll notice in your character it. uh, yeah. and it's just a really lovely I've read it for a long time Nick it's great book. your book uh, Mervyn
1: Peake's the Gormenghast trilogy or as always, oh. my mother calls it, Gorman You like that book, Gorman <laughs> But I mean, Mervyn Peake was a war artist in the Second World War, and he was uh, he went into Auschwitz with the um, with the troops and made those drawings. And he was so horrified that it spurred him on to write uh, the Gorman trilogy. And then, of course, you know. Um, his, uh, you know, his grandson and his daughter, law, of course are very well-known artists now, you know, Philo de Barlow and her son, uh, Eddie Peake or whatever. But, you know, I, I only made that connection quite recently. I didn't realize. But uh, there's a kind of horror and a kind of gothic horror to that book, and it's also kind of captivating and kind of page-turning. And I've... Liked it since uh, I was a teenager, and I've, I you know, reread that. But, you know, it's a close call between that and Kafka, anything Kafka, or the three books, you know. I might write that yeah. down, Gormenghast, yeah, yeah. where's that set? It's a fantasy. Right. Yeah, it's a fantasy world that uh, he creates, set in a kind of... Semi, kind of medievally, kind of world where, okay. yeah, yeah. Titus Groan is the main character, and it's about his journey from childhood as the kind of lord to king, and then the things that happened to him along the way, and how the final book is a kind of redemption. It's a three-book series, and I, it,
3: yeah, you know, I, I love it. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. we'll do film now, film. It's going to be hard, I know. It's a
4: yeah, I mean, I was a film student, so I, I get asked this a lot, and it always changes. My favourite film is probably Dirty Dancing.
3: <laughs> Just because it, it reminds me... Makes absolute me
4: sense, a ...very specific day in my life where nothing was wrong, and I watched it two times in a row, and I think it was <laughs> the birth of my sexuality and, like, lots of... Beautiful Women and Patrick Swayze were no top one. I mean, it was just the Enlightenment period I needed. And the soundtrack's fucking sick. And There's all sorts of things wrong with the writing, but I love it. Brilliant, Nick. Eh? You know what,
1: I can picture it in my mind, and it's a Tarkovsky film, the, the Area. It's not called The Area. That's one translation of it. What is it called? I've got the bloody DVDs right at the top of the stairs, right there. Um, Constructivist again, right? Yeah, no, I love Tarkovsky movies. I love the way they're shot. I love yeah. the pace of them. Um, yeah, the life of me.
3: That's that's art, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing yeah. just the just the way that every scene is constructed so perfectly.
1: Yeah, Area is the translation I think into German, but what is the translation into English? Uh, I can't remember. Might Yeah. Uh yeah, the zone.
3: Ah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. So yeah, then, yeah. It's a theme emerging. And then it's lastly, and then I'll we'll roll, stop rolling. I better say touch. something
4: a lot more profound than my last <laughs> Album. Album, Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. is my favourite album. It's my favourite album. Beautiful. It's, um, it was my, again, the Enlightenment thing. I was a lot older. I mean, I discovered that album. My dad basically thrust it into me because I was like just might to hip hop and that's what I liked. And he was just like, just give this a go. It's
3: one of those albums if you hear it, you can always it catches your ear. If it's you can hear that there's something about the production it, just jangles I mean, in on your consciousness. It's you can Astral Weeks. It's a really violent
4: trebly album. Like mm. Van Morrison's yeah, voice on hot. it, it's fucking loud on it mm. in the mix. It's a really like fucking potent mix. So it should cut through yeah. any
3: environment. That was but did you see Glass uh, um Van at Glastonbury. Man, I, wouldn't, well, I wouldn't bother watching it live. He, he <laughs> Mate, fucking changes. He was, it, had a fucking, it had a big effect on me. I was bursting. Oh, really? I was in bits. It oh, was really? Sunday night, you know, it'd been a long weekend. and mm. I've been through the, you know what I mean? And I was mm. like, oh, I just fucking collapsed with tears. It might so be amazing,
4: I, I just think if you get Van Morrison on a bad day, it's going to ruin it. For oh, you. yeah, yeah. I've got a, a good sure. story about Van Morrison.
3: Come on then, drop it, Nick.
4: Well, yeah,
1: I was, this is what we're here for. Like late 80s, you know, I used to occasionally do press photos for New Order when I was, you know, young and we, we were at Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios and it was the England-Island like World Cup or European <laughs> Championship match and him and Peter Hook went off at each didn't other. didn't go on. <laughs> no, it was really funny. <laughs> Hook and,
3: and Gabriel and yeah, the bear yeah, going off yeah, at the yeah, football. Yeah, it was funny, yeah. Oh, I can't remember exactly classic. what happened. I like that. Now, that is a lost moment in culture, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well,
4: that's <laughs> that's where we're recording. That's where we booked in February. Oh, that's it's the real world. It's that's amazing. Nice. There is that. Yeah. Is that the one
3: in Somerset? In Bath. It's yeah. in Bath. Yeah. 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 yeah,
4: yeah. It's fucking stunning. I can't believe it. On yeah. Salisbury Hill. That, it is amazing
1: all, yeah. there. Yeah, being in yeah the studio then with, with them all night was uh, that place was brilliant when I was a kid. You know? Amazing. Yeah, that was a bit of a gig. Yeah.
3: yeah. How did you make that? How did that happen? Jesus.
1: I just got <laughs> to know them, you know, Like you know, had a camera going around. You I know. would have loved to have met yeah. you
3: as a sort of a 17, 18 year old. You must have been this, like, this ubiquitous little annoying kid with a camera, I mean, like, you poking know. your head But you've got
1: to be, if you
4: want to do something, you've got to yeah. be kind of pushy, haven't you? And then um, that's kind of how um, it It must be a testament to your personality though, because there's, there's, there's a balance between what you're saying Right, and the other side is the, you, these people are like, yeah, come along, because yeah. there's loads of people, loads of photographers yeah. that I've worked with, like, coming on yeah, a, right. an album recording, something intimate like that, or a yeah, tour, right, yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. like, wanting people to get get right. Like, it's interesting, that you because right. you know, there's, there's there's probably something you might not understand, but how. Uh, you, yeah. you were wanted. Right, okay. Because
1: yeah, otherwise awesome. people would have told you to fuck off. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Probably did at some point. I remember, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember <laughs>
3: looking at jam, that Jam sound effects album. Yes. You know, and there's, there's some French kid that turned up at the studio mm-hmm. and starts doing that vocal over one of those really dark, slow tracks on the album, mm. one of my favourite albums. And I've always been fascinated by finding that French kid, how he made that happen. Yeah, you know? right. That would be mm. interesting. A yeah, Nick, uh, album. Um well it's not really an album it's well, a
1: kind of extended of track yeah uh, Strings of Life rhythm as rhythm oh, yeah, yeah I mean that's Derek uh, yeah Derek May that for me is just yeah. the best I can hear know. it now I'm getting tingling you know <laughs> Yeah but the live you know the live recording yeah. that's on yeah. the original vinyl because yeah. obviously he re-recorded it using MIDI so it could be remixed but the original track that he yeah. released is just live Yeah yeah, yeah, and it's just I love it. It's That's just phenomenal.
4: I've never heard of it. Oh, the swings of life. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well you're a Mate, bit young yeah. Yeah, it's that that was a classic uh, Detroit. Detroit Techno. Detroit
3: Techno, but it oh. it kind of I think it was one of the first real big popular Detroit techno eighty eight, yeah Yeah, Right. It just fucking just amazingly. But if you listen again, it's one of those things. Back in the day it sounded dark and edgy. You listen to it now, and it's just soaring beauty. And it's getting really trebly, isn't it? It's really yes. all the upper ranges. Ding It's all keyboard, real high-up keyboard. And it do not sound like dark techno anymore. But in 88, because yeah. we'd been listening to Rare Groove, you know, it sounded dark and, and, mm. and uh, real driving and technologically driven. Yeah, I've got a test pressing of it now as well. <laughs>
1: nice. Yeah, yeah. someone got man. me one. Also, yeah, I've got, just over there, someone just got me, uh, very, very kindly, the Fall's Totals Turn, like Jeff Travis's test pressing of it I've now got, which is kind of... Oh, so like, I this don't is even a, know what you're talking a, about. One of the, it's the second Fall album. And obviously oh, right. they they would try out different pressing plants and they'd make five mm. copies from each pressing plant and one would go to Jeff chavis and one would go to the band and whatever and they would pick on one and this is you know one of those five test pressings from really? the actual factory that they used in the end
4: <laughs> it's one of the ones they used yeah
1: right yeah obviously the test yeah. pressings from the factories they don't use are the ones to really have yeah because they're i've got one of those the PJ Harvey single, Dress, I've got a test pressing from the factory they didn't use of that.
4: Well, for you, does yeah. it, how does it sound? Can you well, tell you why pl- they didn't
1: use it?
4: I can't, know, But
1: people I know who are musicians can tell, you know, yeah. That's so
4: cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. I'd love to hear stuff like that because yeah. you can, like, you know, yeah. just try and get an insight.
1: Yes. Yeah, but my musical... Schools are not good enough. For no, mine neither. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks for listening to John and the Dots. I've been Mike Fordham. This is a podcast from the makers of Huck magazine. We hope you enjoyed. If you did, please tell people about it, share it, download it, comment and subscribe. Thanks to everyone involved in this podcast. Thanks to Joe Torber, Nick Wobbinton and all the people behind the story. Thanks also to all the crew at Huck Magazine and TCO London. Thanks to Vince. Thanks to Sonic Alchemist, Rob. Taliyasin Oren. Stay tuned for more conversations across culture. See you on the other side.